Hello there and welcome to the Secrets of Organ Playing podcast. I'm your host, Vidas Pinkavichus. Welcome to Secrets of Organ Playing podcast number 130. Today is Sunday, January 21st, 2018. And today's guest is an American organist, Randall Crum. He was born in Albany, New York and grew up in the nearby village of Ephrata, where he studied piano and organ with local teachers. During high school, he began focused organ studies with area organist Dr. Elmer A. Tidmarsh, a one-time student of Charles Marie Vidor and a long-time friend of Marcel Dupré. Following graduation from high school and in preparation to audition for admission into college organ study, he studied with Willard Irving Nevins at the Gulmas Organ School in New York City. Subsequently, he was accepted at the Peabody Conservatory Baltimore, uh, where he studied uh, with uh, professors Clarence Snyder, Arthur Ree, and Arthur Howes. Uh, completing both the bachelor's degree and master's degree in organ and liturgical music. Mr. Crum uh, has been organist uh, at a number of churches in uh, the eastern United States, notably St. Andrew's Episcopal Church, Baltimore, Maryland, uh, Sacred Heart St. Francis de Sales, Roman Catholic Church, Bennington, Vermont, and St. Peter's Episcopal Church, Bennington, Vermont. Currently, Mr. Crum is organist choir master of St. Peter's Episcopal Church, Lake Mary, Florida. In 1987, Mr. Crum was an American delegate to the International Congress of Organists in Cambridge, England, where he participated in a variety of organ and choral workshops. In summer 1993, he studied in Paris with organist Jacques Tadei and participated in workshops with Henri Hubert, Philippe Lefebvre, and Marie-Louis Langlais. In summer 2005, he attended the Royal School of Church Music International Summer School at St. John's University, York, England, where he took part in courses and workshops led by John Rutter, John Bell, Alistair Warwick, and other RSCM faculty. Additionally, he participated with all international summer school students in singing daily matins and even song in York Minster. Mr. Crum has presented recitals at the Episcopal Cathedral of All Saints, Albany, New York, the Episcopal Cathedral of St. Paul, Burlington, Vermont, and for the centennial celebration of St. Peter's Episcopal Church, Bennington, Vermont, in 2007. His organ-related activities include membership in the American Guild of Organists, where he is webmaster for the Central Florida chapter and a member of the executive committee. In this conversation, Randall shares his insights about how to keep alive and interested in music as one ages. Let's go to the show. Thank you so much, Randall, for joining in this conversation. I'm so delighted to be able to talk to you today about uh, your uh, lifelong uh, fascination with the organ and how you uh, first started uh, playing it, who introduced to you. Bas- basically, let's start with, with your story of your childhood. Uh, do you remember who uh, helped you discover the pipe organ? Yes, I do. I remember very clearly. I, 
um, was active in a small country church uh, as a child, my family's church, and sang in the children's choir and things of that sort. And um, we had a piano in the church. That was the only musical instrument that was used. And one day I asked the lady who directed the choir, what is that big box over in the corner? And she said to me, oh, it's an organ, but it hasn't been used for 20 years. It doesn't work anymore. My father heard that response and he was very interested in anything mechanical. So he rose to the challenge and um, he said, I have a key to the church. We're going to go down this afternoon while the church is still warm from being heated in the morning and see why it doesn't work. Well, he quickly brought a screwdriver and opened up the side panels on the organ and discovered that mice had eaten through the wind reservoir and the bellows. And um, so he was very resourceful. He brought patching material and patched that. And he said, now, open up the keyboard. There was one keyboard, 56 note tracker instrument and try playing some sound. And he pumped up the bellows and the reservoir did rise, which was a good sign. And um, there was no sound. He said, well, try pulling out some of those knobs, the stops. <laughs> so I did. And lo and behold, there was the sound. Okay. I studied piano for about three years. So I played some of my beginning piano music. And uh, that was the first encounter with the organ. And I was intrigued by the names, by the interesting script of the writing on the stop knobs. The organ was built probably in the 1890s by C.E. Morey of Utica, New York. And uh, then it was originally built for a church in Maine, I found out in research. And then the church in Maine bought a larger organ and it was sent to this little church in central New York State where I discovered it. The very next Sunday, the lady who played the piano said, Randy, would you mind playing for the Sunday morning service? You can play one of your piano pieces on the organ. Very soon after that, I was playing the whole service. As <laughs> a Methodist uh, service, it was fairly simple. We had no choir. And um, so the hymns, I had three hymns, a prelude and a postlude. And that's when I really started playing the organ pretty much every Sunday. Oh. Fantastic, Randall. Such a lovely early experience, right? You really was 100% positive. You had to uh, swim before you learned to do that, right? <laughs> You're right. Somebody dropped you in the water and said, swim. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and then what happened after that, a little Dutch Reformed church next door to the Methodist church discovered that I, in quotes, knew how to play the organ. They oh. had a harmonium and they had nobody to play the harmonium. And they said, would you come and play the organ for us? And I said, yes, because their service was at 9.30 and the Methodist church was at 11 o'clock. So I played for the Dutch Reformed Church and uh, then scurried over to the Methodist church and played the 11 o'clock service there. 
And uh, both churches paid me. The Methodists, I remember, paid me the glorious sum of a dollar per Sunday. Wow. And I had to give 25 cents of that to the boy who pumped the organ for me. He was a school friend of mine. (laughs) Fantastic. And dollar, dollar, value of the dollar was not the same as it is today, right? No, exactly. But it was enough to go to the general store to pick up some sweets or something. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Great. Uh, so your early experience, of course, of course, uh, paved the way for your later career, right? When did you decide to to study organ and, and to become an organist, basically, for life? Well, I had a piano teacher who had retired from New York City and moved to central New York State in his uh, later years. He had also been an organist in his church in New York City. And I found out that he knew something about the organ, so I asked him if he would show me more. And he took me to another little country church where he was playing in his retirement years and uh, said, okay, now we have to use our feet and our hands. And he gave me some pointers on how to do it, but uh, that was very limited because the organ was one, a tiny one with two short manuals and only 13 pedals. Well, actually, it was intended to be a home instrument. Uh-huh. And, um, but I was interested enough that I wanted to go on and study on a larger instrument so I could learn more about a real organ. So I went to a neighboring village where there was a rather good two-manual organ uh, pipe with actual 32-note pedal board. And um, the woman who was the organist there took me through things like the Bowman Suite Gothique and uh, the Reinberg, Reinberger Vision, which may be familiar to you. And um, so I began to actually develop some real repertoire. She also trained me in the um, eight short preludes and fugues of Bach. So I felt that I was beginning to really progress, but then she decided to retire. I so see. I sought out another teacher who was absolutely my inspiration, Dr. Elmer Tidmarsh, who was the uh, organist and choir master at All Saints Cathedral in Albany. And he really set my sights much higher by giving me lessons on um, a church where he was assisting and also a chance to play the organ in the cathedral. And Mm -hmm. at that point on, I decided I was not going to major in anything but music, and that the instrument had to be the organ. So um, I went on to Peabody Conservatory after graduation from high school. Uh I was accepted there and just uh, had marvelous instructors. And you said uh, earlier that uh, you had various teachers there, right? And uh, they all all had the different pedagogical styles, right? So Absolutely. Yes. Tell us a little bit. At Peabody Peabody Conservatory, I studied with Clarence Snyder first, and uh, he was at that time the organist and director of music at the Longwood Gardens in Kennett Square, Pennsylvania. And after that, he uh, decided that the commute was too long and uh, the work was just uh, overwhelming. So the next person who was hired to fill his position was Arthur Ray, 
who was resident harpsichordist and uh, director of music for Colonial Williamsburg, Virginia. Studied with him and he was a brilliant uh, instructor in the field of interpretation. And he really brought me into a love for the music of Langlais and uh, initiated me to the music of César Franck. Oh. And more will come up about César Franck later on. <laughs> and then um, he, uh, I felt, was not really guiding my technique or fingering the way I needed to have it because I, I knew that I was just not playing accurately, not playing reliably. So I thought to myself, I have heard about this teacher who is very rigorous, very strict, his name, Arthur Howes. Uh -huh. and Arthur Howes uh, was very um, active in the uh, organ reform movement and a friend of Helmut Walsha. And I thought, okay, here goes. <laughs> I'm going to change to Mr. Howes. Well, he was my uh, best mentor and uh, really gave me great insights into both uh, Bach and the Baroque and the whole revival and organ reform movement. He also taught a course in two courses in organ construction. In the first year, we learned the theory of organ construction from uh, tracker instruments. The second year, advanced organ construction, the students, including myself, had to dismantle a tracker organ from a church that had closed and been deconsecrated and move it to a small recital hall in Peabody Conservatory, put it all back together, and play it. Wow. Was, once we had done that, we could say that we were going to complete the course satisfactorily. <laughs> so that and it was a two-manual uh, organ, I think it may have been, my memory is a little bit hazy on this, but I think it was a Hook and Hastings. Uh -huh. And uh, it had Barker pneumatic action for the bass octave, which was very interesting to me because I really began to develop some insights about Kavai Cole's system of building with Barker pneumatics. And um, so that uh, got me into the technical aspect of the organ but it certainly did not diminish my love of playing. Rather, I think it increased my understanding of how it worked and how I could play. And I do think it's important for a person to understand how the instrument works in order to play it effectively. Absolutely, Randall. Not too many people are interested in into mechanics sometimes, right? When they start to play, they are fascinated by the grandeur, by the mystery sometimes of the instrument. But uh, but if you have a good expert teacher who can show you around and even give you hands-on experience uh, into assembling and dismantling the organ and putting it back together, it's it's I think invaluable experience. Yes, my philosophy is that a violinist should be able to replace a string on the instrument. A guitarist certainly is expected to replace a string. So I feel that uh, an organist jolly well should know how to tune a pipe and fix a cipher and uh, do those various basic mechanical things. 
Yeah, because it's so difficult sometimes to uh, for the organ builder to come right from hundreds of miles away yes. and uh, on the call of the uh, of the organist. Uh, yes, you do need some maintenance, regular maintenance twice a year or so, but uh, every day fixes and adjustments I think needs to be done by the organist. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And um, so, so I'm sure you later, what happened later, Randall, um, uh, you said uh, you were uh, studying with Frank and uh, Bach and uh, fingering, right? And uh, I'm, I'm uh, looking forward to know what happened later when you uh, had some part-time organist positions, right? Yes, well, it's the, it's the section that uh, I call the juggling years. And... Uh, yeah. Uh, balancing the responsibilities of a fa an increasing family, school teaching, uh, because I taught elementary school music starting with nursery and early childhood all the way through senior high in various assignments. Loved it all. My favorite was um, middle or not middle school, upper elementary, grades four, five, and six with music because uh, at that point they were ready for so many different uh, experiences and open-minded. Uh, I'm sure even now times have changed, but that was I'm, we're looking back now into the 1970s. Uh -huh. And um, so I did that teaching. And then I also on the side had 40 piano students. And so that certainly kept me busy. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very good word to to to, to call it juggling, right? A lot yes. of things on your on your plate. It really was. And during that time, when I had a spare moment or two, in 1982, I had my first experience um, in depth with a computer. Computers were in their infancy, mm -hmm. and uh, I purchased a Tandy color computer. And everything had, there were no programs written for the Tandy Color Computer. Everything had to be saved to audio cassette. And uh, anytime I wanted to do something at the computer, usually it was musical, I had to put in all of the commands and then run the program. Well, I found out how to produce a single tone. Oh. And after uh, literally an all nighter, I finally had a C major scale. Oh. <laughs> that was a revelation to me. And I uh, went on uh, further and began to develop a chromatic scale and finally programmed this little Tandy color computer to play the Bach, APE Bach, Solfeggio, and C minor <laughs> on its own. <laughs> Fantastic. The first instance of artificial intelligence in organ. Exactly. I don't know how much intelligence I had, but I sure had fun with the computer. And then uh, our household graduated to an Apple IIe. And uh, again, that had some uh, very basic musical capabilities. But it wasn't until I discovered the miracles of MIDI uh -huh. that I really began to put computer and organ or a keyboard together. And at this point, I don't know if you can see in the background of my picture, there is a three-manual organ. And this yeah, is I, I my home. Yes. And it is um, a MIDI-capable organ that was built in the mid-1980s. And I have expanded it from two-manual to three-manual. 
and have added uh, all of the computer accessories needed to have the sounds from Hereford Cathedral or from Zutphen Holland, two organ sample sets that are absolutely outstanding. And uh, if I want to play romantic music now and practice with uh, beautiful English sounds, there's Hereford Cathedral at my fingertips. And if I want to play early music um, on various temperament systems, then I have the organ from Zutphen Holland, along with some others. There's a very fine three-manual uh, organ that was built in 2004, I believe it was 2004, in the style of Kavai Kol. And um, it's ideal for practicing any of the French Romantic music. So uh, that's one. Those these are all things that have kept my interest alive, my enthusiasm alive, and have really kept me uh, motivated in uh, maintaining my musical skills. Fantastic! Your 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 technical knowledge and of course curiosity uh, led you to to explore the possibilities early computers uh, could offer right yes uh, exactly and you connected that knowledge uh, later on wonderful so uh, other things that happened along the way that kept uh, the musical knowledge growing were um, master classes and uh, conventions and conferences that I attended. I listed some here uh, when I put in my initial outline that I sent to you, uh, time to expand repertoire and grow in the profession. Uh -huh. section there. And um, so in 1987, I went to the um, International Congress of Organists in Cambridge, England, which is a marvelous experience and had a chance to visit Lady Susie Jeans at her home in Dorking, just outside of London, at Cleveland Lodge. Um, had a wonderful workshop with Walter Holtkamp, and he explained so much about his theory of organ design and uh, really opened my eyes about uh, getting organs out of swell chambers and out of being buried in the back of uh, deep chambers so that the articulation of the pipes could be heard. I learned so much from uh, his talk. And then also learning about a Gothic accent really from Wolfgang Rubsam. And um, these uh, people just left permanent impressions in my thinking. So as I play a Bach chorale prelude now, I think, how would Rubsam instruct me to play this note to make it stand out, to make to show the drama that 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 Bach intended that note or that figure to have? Mm -hmm. And um, so th these people were just absolutely wonderful. And then in um, 1993, uh, in connection with Texas Christian University, I had a wonderful time. Uh, with the, their program of organ study in Paris. And as part of that, I think, well, there were two highlights. Um, having a lesson with uh, Madame Marie-Louise Langlais, and um, we, she wanted to show me the correct way to play uh, her husband's, her late husband's, uh, pasticcio from the 10 pieces, or I think it's no, nine pieces. Oh. 
and he had some very interesting thoughts about the rhythm and what notes should be prolonged just infinitesimally to give um, a sense of elasticity to the rhythm. So he uh, or she explained that to me. And then I had an eye-opening lesson with Jacques Tadet when he was titular at St. Clotilde, Paris. Uh-huh. And that was before the latest rebuild of the organ in St. Clotilde. And I discovered that the swell pedal was actually a hitch down pedal on the right hand side of the uh, key desk. And it was really impossible to play legato pedal during a crescendo or diminuendo in the music of Franck. Mm-hmm. So now I look at Franck's music and say to myself, oh, well, there is a crescendo or a diminuendo here. So keep that right foot out of the picture. Do all the left foot because of the way his organ was constructed at the time he composed things like the chorale in A minor and other works. So, That's true. That's very, true, Randall. Uh, a lot of people don't realize where the swell pedal was uh, placed in Frank's time, right? It was in extreme, extreme edge of the pedal board, right? Uh, yes, Frank, exactly. Right? And it was not a normal uh, swell pedal, but as you say, you lack certain in certain position. I think mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Or if there's a continuation in the crescendo or diminuendo. The right foot has to stay there because the pedal was not balanced. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very, very interesting. So that that was quite a an eye-opening experience. Wonderful, and wonderful. The next part that I uh, felt was a real time of growth was um, an RSCM summer training course that I attended in York, England, mm-hmm. and uh, we were very much involved with the music for the mass and for matins and for evensong. And that wasn't so much growth in organ, but in the overall understanding of the Anglican liturgy and um, working with some very fine directors, They're just marvelous people. So all of this went on. Um, and Finally, I, oh, (laughs) one big piece that I left out. During uh, this later year, I became more and more involved with the computer Mm -hmm. and eventually took uh, college level courses in computer design and construction and programming and ended up teaching computer in one of the colleges near my home. So that became my full-time position. And I was still organist and choir master in an Episcopal church in town. So again, the juggling continues, but the perspectives broaden. And um, so after 10 years of teaching computer and Microsoft Office applications, I finally retired. We moved out of the snow of Vermont to Florida. Uh And after one Sunday of not being on the organ bench, I said to my wife, this is not right. I can't do this. (laughs) And immediately sought out uh, a vacancy in um, an Episcopal church. And the Uh very next Sunday, I was playing the organ again and have been now in this new church for the past eight years. I celebrated my eighth Christmas with this congregation. And they're absolutely wonderful people. 
we went from having a little uh, single manual or uh, actually just a keyboard because it was a new church. We now have a three manual digital organ, which is wonderful, a wonderful choir of 16 voices and uh, life goes on. Excellent, Randall. Um, I hope you will uh, be able to um, continue to serve this congregation for a long time to come. Oh, and so do I. Your, your efforts, of course, and skill and your talent and passion. It's just uh, a wonderful connection, wonderful association. And the chapter of the American Guild of Organists here in Central Florida is very active. And again, going back to the technology aspect and the computer piece, I'm their webmaster. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, for so I, ADO, I right? For yes. Central Florida chapter. Right. I do all, all the web design work and um, also uh, taught a seminar on the use of MIDI with organ. Mm. So, again, the technology and the music come together. You know, Randall, I first discovered MIDI and organ connection at Eastern Michigan University back in 2001, I think. Uh, uh, it was such a miraculous feat for me uh, because uh, my professor, Dr. Pamela Reuter-Finstra, told me to, to play a piece of music and she pushed some buttons, right? Uh, and the music recorded itself uh, onto the... <laughs> the floppy disk there and then she she played she pressed play play back and we both went to the to the back of the hall concert hall and listened to my recording and the pipes pipes kept playing and, yes. and uh, you know it Isn't was like like eye opening for me because yeah. then i thought wow the time will come when people will be able to take this recorder, recording, insert it into a computer, and then magically the notes will appear. Into <laughs> right. right? I, you mentioned Pamela Reuter-Feenstra, and I have her book on um, articul and ornamentation and early music. And uh, again, that has been an inspiration. I'm uh, hoping that uh, I have time and uh, discipline to learn a new a piece that I have just uh, found from the IMSLP website by Franz Tunder. Oh, and yes. A uh, preludium in F, and uh, that's my next challenge. Pamela Reuter Finstra recorded, uh, I think, like... Uh, 17 years ago, back in 2000, I think, uh, entire works of Franz Tunder on the right? German-style organ in Sweden, uh, Gothenburg. Oh. And Oshra and I were present in, in, the, in one of her recitals there where she played portions of the of the recording the with works of uh, tunder and also improvised on uh, unfinished works because uh, tunder left a few pieces that are um, unfinished so she is of course very uh, brilliant improviser in historical styles and she was our first channel into improvisation and early music too that is so wonderful. Uh, her, her writing is very inspiring. And I just know that her research is absolutely meticulous. I will 
um, take the liberty of saying hello from you to Pamela and oh, thank uh, you. giving thanks, right? Yes. And of course, uh, you can do that the same uh, uh, on her website, uh, PamelaRoiterFinstra.com. Well, you should find that. Yes. Wonderful, Randall. Uh, let's continue our discussion. It's so interesting to to know you, uh, what you're doing in your retirement, because you you said that actually retirement is not for you, right? right. You're not <laughs> not not used to sitting on the couch and listening and watching TV all day. Oh no! Oh, that would be sure death. <laughs> <laughs> at, at least for your uh, gray brain cells, right? <laughs> yes, yes, definitely. It's very important yes. to keep those active. So basically, uh, organ playing helps you to do that. And uh, computer science also, programming, yes. right? Web design, uh, your service you're providing for your congregation and also for Central Florida chapter of AGO, I think not only helps them, but also helps you, right? To right. keep active. And, and something uh, else too that I always think of is reading music is the same thing as reading and playing it is the same thing as speaking a second language. Mm -hmm. And being bilingual, in my case, English and music, really helps to keep the brain very active. Yes, you can use both sides of your brain yes. at the same time. And then uh, throw in a bit of French also, and so <laughs> that helps a lot. <laughs> it's like uh, having a two-core computer processor, right? Yes, well said. Well said, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> now, of course, we have four-core and even eight-core computers. Right, well, I am having the pleasure of seeing this video of you on a uh, quad-core processor, and it's very good. Yes, yes. <laughs> Wonderful technology, of course, connecting uh, everyday people experiences. And yes. all of this was yeah, probably uh, science fiction just 15 years ago. True. Uh -huh. yeah. And uh, I think when I think back 15 years ago, we were talking about how wonderful the Pentium processor was. Yes. It seems like the dark ages now. <laughs> Yes, it's like like uh, early Renaissance. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Um, so so Randall, of course, what keeps you motivated to keep playing at this age that you are now? Um, I would say the fact that I really want to learn new music, and um, I realize there is so much that I haven't learned, and there are so many. Uh, there's so much investigation and scholarship in performance practices for early music that I'm really fascinated by, that I uh, really look for chances to think that, to apply it, to learn more about it. And mm -hmm. uh, some of the people whom you have interviewed have talked about early music and the ways that uh, it is played and stylistically to be stylistically correct. Um, I feel very good about the art of registration, that's fine, but I'm very intrigued by the early fingering patterns. Mm -hmm. I've been working uh, at the harpsichord on a Svelink toccata and trying to discipline myself to not cross fingers over thumb <laughs> because I think that would be out of the style. And it's a challenge, but... Uh, it really is something that uh, I would like to know 
more about. And if you ever have the opportunity to um, interview somebody who is really an expert in early fingering, maybe you yourself would talk about that. You know, uh, over the course of the last two and a half years, I spoke with you know quite a few experts in this field, mm -hmm. like, uh, like Peter Dirksen, Swelling's expert, especially. Uh, then uh, Peter van Dijk from the, from the Netherlands, Pamela mm -hmm. Rutter-Finster, of course, yes. uh, uh, and uh, others, yes. And all of them probably would agree with me now uh, uh, in saying that you have to have a historical-styled uh, keyboard. Mm -hmm. If you're practicing with uh, early type of uh, fingering, on the AGO type of keyboard, <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Interesting, because Although, the keys would be shorter and smaller. Exactly, shorter and smaller. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, the short octave at the end where you can actually reach um, not only octave, but a tenth or even a twelfth with your yes. left hand. Yes, Interesting. Uh, that saves some, some time, uh, some, some money for them because some pipes are missing. Right, right. Because they I found that uh, doing some practice on the harpsichord has really improved my organ technique also. True, true. The harpsichord demands such exacting and precise fingering. Mm -hmm. But uh, I would agree with you in, 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 in this situation that even if you don't have a historical type of keyboard, you still need to play it, you know, stylistically correctly. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't make sense for me to learn, uh, let's say, early type of piece uh, like Swellings, Toccata or Fantasia, two ways, one legato, modern way, and another way, the, the, the right, correct, stylistically appropriate way. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make sense, right? I could, right. Uh, I could learn two different pieces at the same time, maybe, uh, yes. but not not one piece in two versions. I don't need that. So I still use early type of fingering and pedaling on modern organs too. It's, it's not so natural. It, you have to think about it, but, but it pays off later when, when you travel and meet uh, older instruments, right? Mm -hmm. and, and have an opportunity to try them out. And we have more and more tracker instruments being built in Central Florida, which mm -hmm. uh, really, makes it uh, very worthwhile to learn the uh, sort of non-legato technique. And uh, especially if the space in which the organ is placed is somewhat live and reverberant, very important, I think. Absolutely. Today is, I think, a, a revival of early type of uh, instrument building techniques and a lot of uh, organ builders uh, rediscover old making uh, pipe or uh, pipe making techniques and methods and uh, they try to recreate all specifications in order for for their organs to have a certain style mm -hmm. but everyone uh, of course is interested into replicated replicating a certain instrument mm -hmm. like copying but but more or less a style uh, uh, imitation is of course very popular these days and also I think um, it's wonderful to be able to experience early tuning methods mm -hmm. um, because it opens up whole new dimensions in the sound of early music 
and I have become <laughs> especially enamored of the Kernberger 3, which oh. uh, is what I use for the, um, the harpsichord in my home. Uh, at home, we have this little practice organ with two flutes on it. We tune it on Kimberger 3. And this is because at, uh, in the church, uh, Vilnius University, St. John's <laughs> Church, we also have Kimberger 3 temperament. Is that right? Great. Now, also, I wanted to ask you what uh, temperament do, or uh, what uh, standard do you use for concert pitch? Uh, depending on the temperature, mm -hmm. if if it's uh, like um, in your Fahrenheit uh, scale, it's like 71, 70, mm -hmm. is, mm -hmm. right? Then it's a, a 440. Oh, right? okay. But in midsummer, very hot, it goes to uh, A equals 444 sometimes. Is that right? Oh, so a little bit higher. I would think it would be just the opposite. I pictured the pipes shrinking and the pitch rising, maybe. Well, no, I see what, and, and the pitch, uh, no, what do I want to say here? I was picturing the pipes expanding with the heat and therefore producing a lower pitch. I see what you mean. I see. <laughs> but it's actually the opposite. Uh, in the winter, when it's colder, the, mm -hmm. the pitch gets lower. Interesting. Now I keep my harpsichord at A415. Uh huh. And uh, it was designed to be tuned at that. And uh, the only people who don't like it is recorder players. <laughs> That's why they have several recorders on their That's collection. That's right. <laughs> Gamba players don't mind. <laughs> no, and voc vocalists, singers also don't don't uh, even notice the difference. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> uh, uh, that's only the organists have to sometimes transpose up and down half a step. Yes. Mm -hmm. So that skill, of course, of transposition is very handy sometimes when you encounter uh, different type of instruments and you want to play together with an uh, ensemble instruments, right? Yes, mm -hmm. hadn't quite thought of it that way because I always have mainly worked with instruments that can be retuned to match the keyboard. Mm -hmm. But uh, yes, I can see how transposition might uh, make sometimes, a better feeling. <laughs> sometimes Randall, the organ builders even built instruments uh, with uh, different temperaments installed in them. For example, uh, the in Silesia, the uh, the current day territory of Poland and a little bit mm -hmm. of uh, Germany, eastern part of Germany, uh, Silesia. Uh, I think they had an organ builder called Adam Orazio Casparini. Oh uh, yes, mm -hmm. Casparini. Yes. Um, and he built he built at least one organ with one manual tuned uh, um, a little bit higher and. Uh, a second manual uh, tuned a little bit lower, or vice versa. It was called Corton and Camerton. Yes. Right? Camerton was lower and mm -hmm. Corton was higher. To, to play vocal music was needed a higher pitch. And to play chamber music, you needed um, Camerton, uh, half step lower, 415. So interesting. Mm -hmm. And that's something, another justification for having multiple manuals. <laughs> yes, and then, and then of course, 
I'm not entirely correct in saying that because there are, I think, two, three or four stops tuned into different pitch level on each manual, on each, because a right hand can, can jump from manual to manual, right? And it has, yeah. has to match. <laughs> Yes, because you don't right. want to be able to play right hand in C major and uh, left hand in D major. <laughs> that would be a challenge. <laughs> yes. Speaking of transposition, that's another skill that I try to uh, practice regularly just to keep the brain active. And uh, that, and also, I've become much more adventurous in the area of improvisation. That's something I was never taught formally. Mm-hmm. But uh, doing simple things like uh, a trio or a canon, a two-part canon, canon at the octave, canon at the fifth or twelfth, um, it really is just good mental discipline. And sometimes mm-hmm. I find it useful in church. <laughs> do you do, Randall, uh, canon at the seventh? No, I've never tried that. <laughs> <laughs> it's very difficult. I'm sure, yes. But you can be very creative because what you need to uh, uh, limit yourself is uh, rhythms. Rhythms should match, of course. If you're following a certain uh, rhythmical pattern, they should match. But the intervals could be quite flexible. And then you would be playing not the strict form of canon, but imitation. Yeah, I like that. Mm -hmm. It will give me a new dimension to work on. For example, if one voice goes, let's say, uh, up a perfect fifth and mm-hmm. then, let's say, down a major second, right? Mm-hmm. And the second voice could go up a major six and down a major second, you see? Yes, I can imagine that. Mm-hmm. That, would, that would ease the sound of canon at the seventh also. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Very interesting. In earlier days, of course, composers and organists knew how to do this on the spot. And yes. uh, in several voices, you could do three-part canon right mm-hmm. away. But that I have not become that adventurous yet. <laughs> then you would really need quad-core uh, <laughs> processor. <laughs> right. Very true. Yeah. Oh, I have so enjoyed our conversation today. Uh, so so am I, so do I uh, so let's let's continue our discussion because uh, today uh, you haven't talked a little bit about challenges you're facing at your age and you even haven't mentioned your age uh, Randall oh. is it a secret no not at all i'm 74 74 <laughs> great so mm. you were born i would say um at the time of Second World War, right? Exactly, right in the middle of it, yes. And my uh, mother used to tell tales about the blackout curtains that were all through the house, and fuel oil was scarce, hardly ever used. So uh, here I was, a newborn infant, being held in front of the fireplace to keep warm, while the rest of the house was very, very cold, (laughs) with snow piled around the outside. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it, it was a really difficult time. But somehow America recovered after the war yes. and became a leader yes. in the world. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, so uh, let's talk a little bit uh, about challenges you're facing at the age of 75, okay? Okay. What is um, for you today? 
One of, well, um, I think one of the challenges that I face is the need to um, do all of the cooking and uh, maintain as best I can the house and the lawn and all. My wife has a disability. And uh, so all of those, and then trying to find time to practice and uh -huh. um, trying to find time even to delve into more composition because right now um, I write this, all the psalm settings for the church Sunday by Sunday and um, I would like to do to branch out and make those more interesting but uh, it's really just a matter of finding the time mm -hmm. uh, for I see what you mean, you mean. Uh, but correct me if I'm a little bit wrong or not uh, but uh, Randall when I myself, uh, uh, for example, give uh, a lot of tasks to do, right, in my day, like 5, 10, or even 15 tasks per day, or even 20 projects to juggle, right, at the same mm -hmm. time. Somehow, I feel like I can do so much more than just focusing on one thing and oh, relax yeah. the entire day. Because then you become a little bit lazy if you know that entire day is... Uh, under your fingers right and you're a master of your time but if you know that your time is really limited and you you have to do many things uh, in your day then you i think uh, use your time you have wisely right and um, focus I think you're absolutely right that having structure to the day is so important are you an early riser randall uh yes Mm -hmm. And um, also, I'm also late to bed at night, so <laughs> uh, makes in the uh, right after lunch, I like to doze for a little bit and then on with the rest of the day. And oh, that's an amazing habit uh, people develop uh, in in later years, but also in middle uh, ages. It doesn't matter how old you are. If you can uh, take a little bit of nap after lunch, you have like two days in one exactly. day, right? Very so much more energy. Like, yes. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of uh, the, the southern cultures of Spain and Mexico and the siesta. <laughs> oh, exactly. It's so hot there that they, they don't have to, they can't actually work uh, after lunch, so they, they sleep. <laughs> right, exactly. So they, they take care of party late in the evening. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> in Spain and in France, too. Uh, fantastic. So, uh, of course, now you have a lot of energy when you split the day into two halves and exactly. take a rest after the uh, lunch, right? Um, and But challenge still is uh, to find time, right? To find yes. time and juggle all those projects that you, you need to do around yeah. your house. Wonderful. And um, if you had... Uh, all the time in, in, in your day, if you were limitless, let's say, Randall, would you do something different? I probably, no, I don't think I would do anything different. I would do more of each. Mm -hmm. I would do more practicing. Um, I would do more, uh, and I would divide the practicing in different ways. I would uh, work more on transposition. I would work more on canon. 
uh, work more on sight reading because I try to sight read every day, something. Oh, that's great. Um, and then also, I like good food, so I enjoy cooking. <laughs> and uh, sometimes meals get uh, very plain and very commonplace because uh, work duties come in and say, no, you have to be away. Uh, but uh, other times when I have time to be creative, then it's fun and uh, I enjoy doing that too. And uh, I love to, as my wife says, go out and dig in the dirt. Uh, one of the joys of living in Florida is I can do that any time of year. Planting things, growing things, it's always a joy. You know, keeping this physical contact with the earth, I think, uh, um, cannot be mistaken with anything else, right? You cannot right. keep contact with, with the earth through technology, right? No, no. definitely not. Yeah. And the, the I always, I'm, always energy. <laughs> I'm always terribly disturbed when I see people who are always wearing headphones or earphones because yeah. they're not listening to the changing sounds around them. And the sounds are so much synchronized with the seasons, the different bird calls, uh, the, the sound of leaves either falling or the rustling of new leaves. And uh, there's so many sounds in nature that are really important that uh, one cannot hear if one is always listening to something from a little box. <laughs> exactly. And uh, people who are listening uh, uh, through earphones perhaps get uh, bored, right, by the nature sound or the uh, noise of the environment. Um, and then, of course, they need to listen to something uh, in their ears. Um, but but that keeps them, keeps them less focused, I think, if, if they don't uh, uh, appreciate the environment they're in. Right. Yes. One of the things I did before our um, communication today, I have I collect clocks uh -huh. and uh, I have clocks from 200 years ago to almost present day. There are four here in the music room from which I'm speaking. I stopped all the clocks. Otherwise, it would sound as if we were having the battle of the metronomes. <laughs> oh, mechanical challenge. Did you know that sometimes if you have like a 100 metronomes and or clocks, mm -hmm. they all make uh, that noise, uh, chaotic noise, right? Cacophony. Right. But then once in a while, they synchronize. Yes, yes. And then they go off again. Mm -hmm. right? It's so amazing. I've seen a video on YouTube once by a Japanese uh, engineer uh, with hundreds or so metronomes all uh, uh, running at a different speed. But once in a while, they all synchronized and uh, lined up together. It now was like probably a has a mathematical solution. Definitely, or <laughs> algorithm, algorithms or, right. or equations of, of some sort. Mm -hmm. My musical mind cannot even imagine. Well, music and math are very closely aligned though. And not yeah. just because we count. <laughs> Pythagoras, of course, invented all those intervals and uh, and uh, tuning system that we know, uh, Pythagorean temperament, tuning yes. in perfect fifths. Yes, uh, it mm -hmm. was his invention, uh, apparently, as a legend goes. Right. <laughs> so wonderful, Randall, conversation. 
I'm so inspired to practice today after after our talk today. Oh, great. And so I am I. We will also try to sight-read something, maybe to transpose something, maybe even improvise something. Yes. All, all, all so important to be really done every day. Yes. At least six days a week. <laughs> and when you do that, you actually don't feel old, right? No, not at all. No. As long as you're keeping yourself busy, you're not getting older. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I keep telling myself that. <laughs> yes. Wonderful. I hope people at your age or even older will be inspired to make themselves even more busy, busier. Right. I must tell you who my hero is. Charles Marie Vidor. He played oh. at Mass until he was 95. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> Oh, 95. 95. That's he, a good age. Good yes, age. it's Ansel Peace. And Louis Vierne even died on the organ bench. Yes, but he was only 37. Oh. Yes. Poor heart condition, probably. Yes. No, well, I think it was too much of the bottle. Ah. <laughs> Max Reger probably also died from, yes. from, from alcohol. Mm -hmm. Right. Related right. causes. So yeah, keep uh, let's keep uh, uh, a healthy lifestyle and keep uh, organ bench uh, closer to ourselves. And I think everything else will fall into order. You are absolutely right. So good talking with you. Thank you so much. Let's keep in touch, Randall, and uh, keep inspiring people around you. Keep uh, sharing your wisdom to your congregation and AGO Central Florida chapter. Fantastic. Before we end, I almost forgot, of course, because it's, it's so um, immersive, our conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, how can our listeners uh, connect with you? Could you oh. tell... Probably to my Why? Facebook page. Uh, okay. Just search for Randall Crum. That's R-A-N-D-A-L-L-K-R-U-M. And uh, I will be there on Facebook. <laughs> Fantastic. I'll put the link uh, to your Facebook profile on the description of the conversation. And people could literally click and visit you and say hello. And uh, people from all the continents, from 89 countries, and uh, people who are younger than you and older than you too. Fantastic. True. I'm sure. I, by the way, I really enjoyed that uh, recent posting from uh, a young organist in Australia. New John South Higgins, yeah. Yes, it was great. And he is actually, John is coming to Lithuania. Uh, to wonderful. A concert in Vilnius, in our church, in April. Wow. So oh, this will be a real physical meeting. Uh, I haven't uh, met him physically, only mm -hmm. uh, interacted uh, digitally for six years. Oh, that's great. But it feels like the same. Sure. It's, it's, it's like a friendship. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Excellent. Thank you so much, Randall. And um, um, keep inspiring again, people. You're so wonderful and so inspirational. I know my day will go so smooth, uh, smoothly tonight because I met you. Great. Thanks so much. A pleasure meeting you face to face. Take care. If you liked this conversation, I encourage you to visit my blog, Secrets of Organ Playing, at organduo.lt where you will find lots of insights, practical advice and training for every area of organ playing. 
You can subscribe to this blog for free to get your daily dose of inspiration and to be the first to know when any of my future podcasts roll out. I hope to help you reach your dreams in organ playing. I'm Vida Spinkavitus. Thanks for listening and I'll catch you online really soon.